This podcast was recorded on Gadigal land. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. I'm a bit thrilled because I've got writer, broadcaster, producer, presenter and legend Marie Hardy on today. Hello. Hello. You didn't tell me you were going to say legend, but that's quite exciting. I thought I'd leave that as a surprise. Like archaic media people, like Bert like style. Oh, he's an Aussie legend. And you're like, hang on, who am I? All right. Well, today I've got the Bert Newton of of. Women of Letters, Marie Carney. Oh, God, that's worse, isn't it? I've got a head <laughs> I know, but that's a, I think the comparisons end there. And I've made Marie watch Holy Hell on Netflix. So who are we, which cult are we talking about today? Tell me your stupid name. Tell me your stupid um, Butterfield is the cold. I mean, you say you made me watch it. I mean, what <laughs> what an amazing time for someone to give you a Netflix recommendation, really. You know, exactly. I am in Melbourne and we've been trapped inside for three and a bit weeks. So it was just like, wow, oh, wow, a new Netflix thing. Thank you so much, Joe. Um, so, yeah, Butterfield is the cult that is seems to still be going, which is, you know, always the amazing thing when they've got, I mean, it's the same as the sannyasins for Wild Wild Country. There's a huge kind of... yeah a documentary and yet these things still continue which always is a staggering kind of portrait of people's capacity for denial like even in the yes right very specific and damning evidence both visual and legal and I think there's something demonically beautiful in people requiring the attachment to the cult so much that they are able to push any kind of facts um yes and people justify that it's like well this is fine because he's a god which we've all said in a relationship at some point but I try and get away with that no it doesn't work all the time I was on my hinge profile didn't didn't help (laughs) and I will say that almost all of the information there's bits and pieces here and there but almost all of the information that you can find about the Buddha field is from the Netflix documentary Holy Hell and it was made by uh, ex-member Will Allen. So if you haven't seen it, uh, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, this episode will have spoilers. So make some good choices. Yeah, and don't get angry at us if we say something and then you're like, oh, but I haven't watched it yet because I think, Joe, as you just like very fairly gave people the info, you did some expectations management is a phrase that I learned running the writers' festival. Um, yeah. My new arts management uh, guys, I learned so many strategic value alignment. That's another one. I am digress. Yeah, the thing I found very beautiful about the fact that this was an ex-cult member making this documentary is that, you know, I will say some lovely light things about the absurdity of um, Butterfield and the doco, but it's also connected to some really deep trauma for almost everybody involved. And I guess as someone who makes art myself, and I'm always so admiring of people who turn that emotional catharsis into something, I think it's a real gift. I think it would have been helpful and healing for this filmmaker and his family to process what they'd been through 
so deeply and it was a real gift to the other people who he'd experienced and survived the cult with because I really felt that they were healing together. Yes, and you could see that in their faces. So Will Allen, the filmmaker, he has, because the cult leader who we'll introduce in a sec is just one of the most robustly egotistical people you will ever see. Like you can't start a cult if you don't have bloody tickets on yourself. You've got to have fucking tickets. Like if you don't, I guess, plausibly have tickets on yourself, people will see that you don't believe in yourself. It will only take the tiniest thing. Just tickets. Yes, and I think there's that that sense of, of of people, you feel like people owe you respect and so you almost force it out of them. But because he was so egotistical, Will, this cult member who made the film, had just come from film school and he kind of made his job the documentarian of this group and the people on it. So it's partly this incredible footage from the 20-plus year history of this cult, but it's also interviews with ex-members. And what you were just saying, Marie, about them just going through this catharsis, you can see them unloading and it's a relief to be able to talk about it now they've got a bit of power back. Yeah, and there's something quite beautiful in that as well. You know, you do get a a real sense of how idyllic their time in the cult was for a, a large percentage of it, the way they all speak about it. They were all very young in the cult and we can talk about that in a moment, but they were very young and beautiful and very connected to each other. There seemed to be a lot of actual palpable love between them when they were younger and it's kind of really heartening to watch them as very worn down bruised adults who have survived this that that connection even though their belief in the cult has disappeared that that was real that's kind of really beautiful I think. Yes and before I did like the way the documentary was crafted because I love a twist and you just in the first half of it I was thinking this is a cult I would join there's an uncommon amount of fellow feeling and togetherness and proper joy in this group at the beginning and everyone was hot as fuck Yeah, they were really stacked, weren't they? And they liked to get around in their skimpies. It was one of the whitest cults I've ever seen in my life. It was blindingly white. It's so often a white person problem. Yeah, and they all just, it was a very specific kind of, they just seem like healthy California, sun-kissed, big head, wide smile kind of. There was a real sense of that that just stepped right out of a kind of... um, who am I thinking of? I was about to say Andrew Ridgely, but he's from where? Andrew McCarthy. said <laughs> out of the back of his convertible, like he was off to pick up Molly Ringwald, but out the back somewhere so no one saw him do it. And they, I still don't get Andrew McCarthy. Oh, uh, yeah, he's a very specific brand of team. Yeah. He's not just sort of inoffensive. He's kind of wet X level harmless. Well, you still, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't agree with you on that because I, I know he looks like a like he looks like if a cat ate a pie and became a cat. <laughs> like he looks like 
by half cat. I get that, but I still wanted to like touch him when I was young in a way that, you know, when you're just like, I want to do things to you and I don't know what they are. <laughs> yet. I was more a Judd Nelson person because I oh, like the yeah. bad boys. Oh, no, he scared me. See, Morton Haka <laughs> was my ideal. And Michael J. Fox, I wrote um, love letters to Michael J. Fox and Morton Haka. So there's a very <gasps> specific brand of harmless going on there. I said, yeah, and I was writing love letters to Michael Hutchins. So, yes, I can see you. I can see the line of divide there. All right. Now, oh, one note as well. One of the executive producers of Holy Hell was Jared Leto, who I've talked about on this podcast. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And was it Cheryl Graham as well? Did I get that right? I always like there's a few Cheryls in America, famous Cheryls, and I get them confused. Oh, I'm not across the Cheryls. There was like a CEO and one who wrote it. They might all be the same ones. And it might not be Cheryl at all. I've just imagined that. But there's someone else kind of famous who also executive produced the film, which is, I guess, Hollywood people giving it that push. And I think it did get a lot of attention at Sundance. Was it one of those Sundance premieres that um, got everyone buzzing? I did want to say, Joe, about the um, the staggering amount of footage there, which is because the director of this film was in the cult for, was it 22 years? Yes, 22. Poor, beautiful boy. And so and so, all that footage is just you're there with them at that age and you see all the people when they were young and you see them now and the ravages of time will come for us all. Um, <laughs> I recently re-watched, like in the last week, re-watched Capturing the Freedmans. Um, which is an incredible documentary, it was nominated for an Academy Award many moons ago now. I think it must be over 10 years old. But, I haven't seen it. Oh, well, brace yourself, Joe. It's pretty intense. So just go easy when you watch it. It is can be quite triggering doco for people. But what's amazing about it is that it was a family who filmed themselves consistently over years. They loved making movies. And so I... Again, that thread of it's not just talking heads telling you about a time, you get to see actual footage of that time. And even though yes. the Butterfield doco is incredible, well, different, not as different as you might imagine from Capturing the Freedmans, I think <laughs> something such it's such a gift for an audience when they, they see those people when they were in their 20s talking to the camera or wandering around. It's amazing. Yes, and it's so rare for a cult because they're usually so secretive. But let's let's introduce our leader, who uh, he's got so many names. But also, did you do the thing I had never, I'm reading his name as Jamie, but it's pronounced Jaime, which I deeply love. Oh, I don't think I knew that. No, because I saw, I listened to a couple of podcasts where people were talking about him and when they said Jaime, it it clicked and I just thought, oh, so I was going to call him Michelle for this, but I might switch between Mich- uh, Michelle and Jaime because I just like saying Jaime. Yeah, he's a really interesting one to talk about. And, again, you know, like I said before, like you're hilarious. I didn't say that before, but you are. And cults, <laughs> are, cults are so absurd and funny and weird and just kind of we get to watch them with this kind of like, God, people are so fucked up and yeah, kind of just I guess the glee of an audience and Michelle as a character slash human being is intriguing and fascinating and just I mean sartorial choices alone the guy like rocks a pair of speedos with socks and slip-ons and I'm like that is a look that I would like to establish in 
pandemic. He is a gift. Yeah. I mean, he's a horrible gift. Well, this is the thing. But... I mean, we have to make light of some aspects of this, but I guess, like I said before, it's also attached to a huge amount of trauma and yes. and criminal behavior um, and, and abuse. And so it's sometimes so hard to talk about that stuff, even though it's kind of like we're all laughing at cults. Cults are kind of strange and funny, but not only the dark shit that happens within them, but people's reasoning for joining is yes. pretty amazing. And I think like these gorgeous, intelligent, creative people that are in this group, I think there's always empathy for the followers and the awful things that they have to go through because they could be any one of us at a particular time in our lives. But I do really, really love giving the leaders shit because what they crave most is reverence and it's it feels absolutely right to not give them any. Well, you know, I'm such a firm believer in the, you know, hurt people hurt people and the, and the deeper the fucked up behaviour gets, you're just like, wow, you got hurt really badly. I don't really want to say his name but I'm going to, but Donald Trump was hurt mm. really badly as a child. What we're seeing is like a huge case of father issues and someone desperate for his father's love which he never got playing out in this way that is really insane and affecting so much of the world and some you know whatever caused Michelle to crave that validation and adoration and slavish devotion really there was nothing people would wash his feet um and carry a chair around for him yeah well he was born like like Trump, he was born the son of a wealthy man. So he was a Venezuelan rancher yeah. and came to the US in search of stardom and legally changed his name to Michelle Rostand. And I looked up Michelle Rostand's IMDb. Is this that he was in Rosemary's Baby? Well, he was <laughs> he was an extra in Rosemary's Baby, but he likes to say that he featured in it. Most of the titles on his IMDb profile are porn titles. Yes, there's a lot of uh, there's there is a, a couple of scenes in the documentary that made me go, "Oh my goodness! Oh, I didn't know it's that." It's the that most impressed I was. I was a bit taken aback. I think I said, "Which is this is quite uncool of me," but I think my first reaction was I actually said, "Gracious!" Oh, yes. <laughs> It's what I call a PCBJ, which is a pearl-clutching blowjob because it's quite acrobatic. Well, it, it, I just started going, is that what, is that what chaps like? I, is that what I should be trying more of? I'm not sure if I've got the upper arm strength. I mean, I'm trying. I do a lot of chaturangas in yoga, but I wasn't doing them with the intention, intention of holding up my partner so I, I could place him in my mouth. Well, this conversation's taken a turn. Um, but it has to because that scene is like you can't unsee. There is this very specific moment in Michelle's erstwhile career in adult entertainment and the sex industry, um, which is why well, I found it eye-opening, really, informative. Yes. And I like I I like Chaturanga just as much as the next person, but I I want any sort of workout that I get during sex to be just incidental not not a pivotal part of it 
No. Anyway. Anyway, we, I mean, I think that is one. I don't even know if you want to describe it. Let people explore that for themselves because it really was amazing. And, look, you know, there's that interesting element as well. There's no shame in a cult leader having a past in the sex industry at all. But it was sort of tied to the fact, I mean, he, he placed himself as and allowed those around him to place him as basically a god, as you mentioned before, and revered as such. And I do think it's that kind of deceptive element. And and I think some of the survivors of the cult say he wasn't who we thought he was. He played up a lot of his other things. He said that he was a, a dancer in the Oakland Ballet and in Rosemary's Baby, but he didn't mention this. And I think it was mostly because he, he would have, been seen as a hypocrite because a part of his spiel was that sex saps your spiritual energy so he really well in public anyway said that people should be generally celibate so it might have been the hypocrisy rather than any any shame there yeah absolutely and I just think it's such a fascinating portrait that you get this, I mean, there were hundreds of their beautiful, young, healthy people in this cult. Of course they were going to end up having sex with each other, no matter how much the cult leader is saying don't do it, it's going to sap your energy. And they did. They just said it was like a lot of them were living very chaste lives, but there was this rampant kind of sexuality that, that you can see in the old footage. They're all just kind of so touchy and... Um, and that's even in the opening bits of footage where they're all, I think, in a lake and in their in their in their swimming cozies, mm-hmm. and just and freeing each other of any of their baggage by pretty much just stroking each other. I just it was all I could do not to lick my screen, Marie. Yeah. It was just they're gorgeous. I would have absolutely broken the sex rule in that cult. Yeah, I think I broke the sex rule watching it. No, I didn't. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> when you said before, like, it's a cult that you would join, I thought that too. Actually, I did think that about Wild Wild Country a little bit as well, but that was mostly because I really liked the maroon colour scheme. That was just a strong I just like it because Sheila's a gun. You would just want to work with her. But this one, I mean, I think there's something very heroic in terms of um, self-interrogation and trying to understand yourself and heal yourself. Um, And it did sound like a lot of those people that joined, as most people who joined cults, whether they come from a place of damage or they want, want, want to understand something about themselves or learn something or heal from something. And then they're all kind of, it was very loving. They were all supporting each other. They were all living together. They were all sharing tasks. It was it was super idyllic. It did look great. They started in West Hollywood and eventually moved to Texas and that's because Michelle Jaime got paranoid after Waco in 93. He recruited in classic California style through yoga and meditation sessions. And that's how he attracted a lot of these gorgeous young things. And I think it seems like they all lived with or near each other at the beginning and then all in once they moved to Texas in an actual compound, which we'll, we'll discuss in a bit. 
there are yoga teachers that I would die for already. You know, you know when you end a really good class and you just look at the teacher and you're just like, I would die for you. And some, I know I want to go and I want to talk to them afterwards and tell them everything about my life. Yeah, and and the re, I'm back in the old world. Sometimes you might hug them and cry on them at the end of the class, which whether they like yeah. it or not, I would I would some I would like to hug them sometimes because of that meditative closeness that you feel to the instructor they seem magical a lot of the people in the buddha field cult reflecting back also talked about it was i mean it was clearly a very happy time for them socially uh, in terms they did feel this intense closeness a lot of them talked about how it was one of the healthiest times of their lives as well it seemed like a very physically active group um michelle practiced ballet as you mentioned and they would do ballet there's an amazing sequence where they basically build their own theater to put on they've lived my dream to put on their own shows (laughs) for themselves starring themselves i marveled at this you will rarely see a cult with better posture he insisted on a good diet for everybody and and lots of physical fitness, including three to four hour ballet classes, I think every day. And yes, this theatre, hand built by his followers once they moved to Austin, and it's still open but not run by them anymore. And I'll put a link to the website on the Zealot Facebook page, but now it's called One World Theatre. But these ballets they would put on, the handmade costumes, sets, props, and of course there's footage in Holy Hell, but it's they're magnificent and nobody outside the cult saw them. No, I kind of love that. I really love that. And I was thinking of when I was in, um, I think I was in year eight, um, and I was a quote-unquote problem child, which should surprise no one, but I had my reason for a problem child. And it was, I think I must have been 14 or 15 because I moved out of home when I was 16, but in the tiny, tiny window my parents had before they completely lost control of me forever, I got hmm. sent off to a camp called Discovery. Of and, course you did. <laughs> which was a camp in the school holidays and it was supposed to kind of, for kids who weren't didn't quite have their shit together um either academically or emotionally or were like wrestling with their mothers on the living room floor in a very healthy way but um it was so culty joe it was like well, there were no um doors they took out all the doors uh of the room so there were no doors and it was really wow. like heavy in terms of Oh, there was a talking red velvet heart that you could only talk when you had the heart. And it was like, and when we arrived, you're going to love this. Uh, so we arrive on the bus and you come out and all the counsellors, they're playing celebrate good. No. Come on. And they're all dancing and like singing and picking up our luggage and like handing it on to each other in this human centipede of luggage moving. And we're all like teenagers going, this is shit. I <laughs> And like, so, and then over the course of the, I think it was a couple of weeks, I can't remember, it was a blur. 
Um, yeah. But you had to like show whether you were just showing up or whether you were participating or you're enthusiastically involved. Like who here is just showed up today? Who here is enthusiastically participating? And bit by bit, they wore us down. By the time our parents arrived for the end of camp day, we were doing the celebrate song and dancing. No. Totally. And it was really emotionally manipulative. Like I had to have a showdown with my parents holding the red velvet heart and the talking. It was just insane but there's a whole Jesus Christ. No, it's really there's a reason I'm messy but I've worked at hard at therapy so I'm fine now don't worry I'm very very good girl in the world. um but that whole end of camp concert vibe there was a lot of those vibes coming from Butterfield like it was a real kind of you know the best camps that you go on where you guys are like we are gonna stay in touch and we're gonna see each other every school holidays and we're gonna I'm gonna write to you because you're my best friend and this has been because it's an intense time you're all kind of crammed in there together and sleeping in the same rooms and then you put on the concert just for each other which was yeah. very much my time to shine because I was a child actor but um yeah, I, I didn't realize that this would be a uh, <laughs> well, not triggering, but a, a nostalgic watch for you. No, yeah, I didn't quite connect Discovery to Butterfield for reasons that are probably quite important. But um, good. Yeah, I mean that sense of feverish passion that you have for your friends and the people around you on the camps um, when you're young. That I saw that reflected in the eyes of those people. They were all just so happy to be around each other all the time. And oh, yeah. I mean, obviously this was a school camp that went for, you know, 22 years for some of them. I suppose a bit like Discovery, there is that, I mean, there's a few elements. There's detachment, there's separating you from, you know, your background and people were encouraged to not, to sort of detach from their families in Butterfield and they were given new names, which was just that, Michelle's whim and ego stripping where your own ego and your own wants and needs and in some examples that might have been if someone got pregnant having an abortion at Michelle's request because he didn't want any children people who wanted puppies and weren't allowed to have them and some of his beliefs or the beliefs that he espoused some of which he learned from let's say stole from Prem Rawat, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but he was a, an Indian guru who was very, very popular in America in the 70s. And his teachings included a meditation practice called the knowledge, which we'll talk about how Michelle adapted that. But he also got a lot of the ego shredding things and exercises from theatre training. Yeah, well, we've all been there, haven't we? Um, yeah. Trust that's another place they break you down, drama school. I did that as well as a kid. <laughs> oh, I did I did dance, so there's no ego in dance because you just hate your life at the end of every ballet class. Yeah, I've seen Black Swan, I, I would assume. Yeah, that. it's exactly yeah. like that, Marie. Yeah. You know what we haven't talked about, we haven't mentioned yet is and I think it took me a little while to understand it in the doco, is that it was quite religious. There was talk of God and seeing God and connecting to God. It wasn't just because I guess the way as we've talked about it, it's been about that it's very physical and beautiful and there's this kind of collective consciousness and we're all living together and supporting each other and loving each other. But there, there was a religious, quite strongly religious element to what they were practising.
Definitely. And it was it was a bit fuzzy whether Michelle considered himself God or just in touch, directly in touch with God. But it was very, very much based in Hinduism or, you know, his kind of Cliff Notes Reader's Digest version of Hinduism. He based a lot of it, I think, from yoga. So he would use the Sanskrit words for a lot of things like Shakti for his that bizarre practice where he kind of grinds his thumb into the the followers' foreheads to transfer power and energy. Of course, then there's the knowing, not the knowledge as the Indian guru had, but the knowing. How did you feel watching this? Because this is the knowing is where Jaime will take you aside and show you God. Yeah, and he was and it, very he was very selective about it. It's it was deeply emotionally emotionally manipulative, which I guess you have to be in order to keep people subservient. You know, when people have lost faith in themselves or believe you have the key to saying yes or no, that's a really clear way to keep people in your thrall. Um, so he would be very selective about who was allowed to get the knowing. And so people would go and see him for what looked like a one-on-one session, a very beautiful forest. Oh, with some great nature in that documentary. Um, beautiful. And so he'd sort of, you know, look into their eyes and commune with them in the mind sense and then sometimes go, no, you're not ready. And the how distraught some of these beautiful little people were it's really heartbreaking and then it would have been devastating and then watching the others celebrate in this drunken way because they were full to the brim of god's love and to not receive the knowing and watch that would be devastating and i did find it interesting that a lot of the people who who didn't receive or were told that they weren't ready and that they weren't allowed to access it it didn't then cause this intense bitterness with them they didn't go well Michelle's a jerk they just said something was wrong with me and and other and I they didn't seem to be jealous of their well not overtly not in the documentary of the other people who got the knowing they was it, these people were all about it's my problem and that's his kind of yeah his book is that he's makes he makes his own abusive behavior he makes his own failings he makes anything the problem of the person it's like well it's your ego that's telling you that and that's a lesson that you need to learn and that's why I'm putting you through this because I'm helping you yeah he had a real talent for instead of sort of creating resentment he created resolve so people would just go I need to try harder I need to do this yeah and I'll read a bit from a Huffington Post article about about the cult and in particular about the knowing. And it says, Michelle would employ an ancient Hindu technique, pressing his fingers to the recipient's eyes in such a way that intense beams of light would form. Using the spiritual teachings they'd been fed, members fixed deep meanings to the experience, often calling it at most God or at least intoxication. And if it was ineffective, Michelle claimed that person wasn't spiritually prepared to receive the knowing. So I also listened to a podcast called Deep State Consciousness that interviewed uh, Chris Johnston, one of the ex-members, and he said that in the early days when Michelle would take someone to a side room of the yoga studio to give them the knowing, he would actually flash a little light while their eyes were closed to give them the 
kind of spiritual light show. Um, Anne Hamilton Byrne, her combo was she'd give them yeah. acid and then get people to put like a torch behind her and a fan or something, wasn't it? It was all kind of light play and yeah, a little bit of smoke show and lights and that sort of thing. It was all very look. It's like having a little disco cult, and I I don't hate the idea. No, those two words go really well together for me. Um, the other <laughs> thing that we haven't discussed, another inroad for his manipulation, which does get revealed later in the doco, is that he was basically acting as psychologist to them as well or putting them through these kind of big um, repressed memory stuff. They would work with a therapist about repressed memory and mm. take them to some really intense places because obviously people as we said before a lot of damaged people join cults because they're trying to figure something out and so he had all this information about their very specific personal trauma which he could then use to keep them in place and yes it was almost like the e-meter readings that Scientology has and Jaime was trained as a hypnotherapist so he really could first get people to tell him their secrets with that ego stripping thing and then use them later in a really sort of it's almost like supportive blackmail yeah well it's a way to to keep someone subservient is that if you know they're starting to find their own power and you go oh this is just related to that specific trauma of yours and you shouldn't do this because it's going to hurt you more and they would just adored him so much he is he's Oh, I want to. Say, I was about to say repulsive human, but I'm going to stop myself because, again, I don't think anyone behaves like that unless something terrible has happened to them as well. So something fucked up happened to this guy and he, his behaviour was monstrous. On paper, right, if you saw he was a, a very good dancer, I don't know what his acting was like. He looked a bit hammy, but, you know, he had an amazing body. I'm digging the sartorial style. I think that's a strong look. I like a man who can walk around in a very snug speedo and, like, socks and sandals and just, like, make it, like, own it. I'm like, yes, good. Let's absolutely talk about his look, though. It's It's an incredible body. Yeah. And he worked very, very hard on it and insisted that everyone else did as well. Walked around almost all of the time just in Speedos. Speedos and mascara. It's the absolute minimum. I'm, love, I'm loving that as a look. That's the thing. And so he's like a dancer, a performer, a yoga instructor, a hypnotherapist. He's been in, in the sex industry. And I'm like, this is a guy I'm interested in, like, getting to know better. Like, I would, if I saw that on a dating profile and then saw a picture of him, like, strutting or strutting or gliding around and he's amazing. He glides. I would be like, I want to meet you. You're quite a sexy cell. It's very rare for someone who, because he loved a bit of plastic surgery as well, and it's really rare for someone with such an obvious an obvious number of surgeries to exude that kind of serenity. It's, he's just, he does have, for a guy in Speedos, an incredible serene aura. That's how you pull that shit off. Very impressed. Like, you- yeah. Do you know once I was driving down Chapel Street and I saw this amazing looking, I think there were a couple of girls, there was an amazing girl, and she had like spangly, amazing hot pants on and roller skates and some amazing kind of like wig on. And I was kind of like looking at her and going, wow, that's awesome. And she goes, what? And I'm like, you can't say what. Like, no. You being amazing in your roller skates. And 
I think, Michelle, like you have, if you own what you, you can get away with wearing anything if you own it. And God damn, he owned those Speedos. Like rock, you know. And this this is coming from me, a person who rethinks every hat at the front door. <laughs> I'll happily take risks from the neck down. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm all about risks. So like I have some, you know, I do follow um, advanced style and Instagram and all those like really kind of um, older people rocking some very specifically outrageous looks. Like Jenny Key is one of my style icons, if only, like she's amazing. So I'm not afraid of like a bold print. Um, mm, I'm getting there. I also think it's kind of a very strong body owning thing to just wear like snug clothing if it feels like great on you. And I think he felt he was feeling himself in those speedos. Um, and so, yes, look, the guy was an abusive monster, looked good in a pair of Speedos. I don't think those two things necessarily cancel each other out. I think the abusive monster will win out there. But what you said before, he's very serene. And I did find he has a way of gazing at his followers that did make my skin crawl a little. And and yet it's one of his techniques and it's this is very much, and people I think said this in the documentary as well, that if you haven't experienced him, then he just looks like a vain guy in Speedos with a creepy stare. But I think that experience where he would, you would be convinced that he was transferring energy to you. And I think life in the Buddha field, which was very much engineered to be all about him, especially as he got more and more paranoid after Waco and after the move to Texas, just that constant adoration and focus on him, I think meant that if you're in there, that stare is everything. And if you're not, it just looks bizarre well, that, and off-putting. That is the word that always comes up when you read about cults or is the, mm. the charisma of the specific person leading it because you don't get away with that sort of stuff unless you are pretty charismatic um, yep. you can convince people of that. But the stare was, yeah, I found it, you know, I mean, I'm an introvert as well. So it was the combination of the idea of someone staring at me for that long made me feel mm. really weird. But also, and this again, it speaks to the Americanness of Buddha field. That, and again, I'm super earnest as well. I love earnestness. So that earnestness really spoke to me. But the, the group participation, not so much. Yeah, and just stop touching me. Oh no, I like being touched. It's not. I'm a mixed bag. I love. I'm very tactile, and I'm really missing touching everyone at the moment because obviously we're not allowed to anymore. But how tactile it was, I loved. How loving it was. There was a real ribbon of kindness, and again, I think there's something really beautiful in people going. I have a, a rock of damage inside me and I want to understand it in order that I can mm. move forward. And all those people there were there for that kind of intense reason and then they were super earnest about it. So all of, all my boxes are being ticked. But then when they all start kind of doing group audience participation and there's lots of performative, they I don't think they did this, but you know the laughing yoga that people do, which just, Yes. I mean, I'm sure it feels great to do, but it just that I, I'm embarrassed even thinking about it. It makes me feel really anxious. <laughs> I made, I convinced a friend of mine that I'd been doing a thing called screaming yoga. Uh, and I demonstrated, which is basically just doing, you know, normal yoga poses, but screaming. Oh, and that. it was actually quite cathartic. Yeah, that sounds quite funny. Good. It's like the opposite of yin. I think we'll we'll go through what life was like in the compound and then we'll get to the bad stuff. Take me to your town.
really running quite a classic cult. He led activities six nights a week and there were weekly meetings called satsang, which in Sanskrit means to associate with true people. And that's where he would be preaching and everyone would be singing and playing instruments and dancing. In addition, there were weekly hypnotherapy sessions that we talked about called cleansings. And the thing that we'll discover was galling later was that he would charge his followers $50 per session and they were weekly. Sundays the group would drive out to secluded areas and sit around and sing and listen to Michelle and he would throw food at them, which is just, that's bizarre, but fantastic. It was pretty jam-packed activities, wasn't it? Like it was a small activity schedule. And there's no caffeine or drugs or alcohol allowed, but people were expected to do service, which is basically chores. So everyone, a lot of people went out and worked normal jobs during the day, but then they would come back to the compound and build things and fix things and clean things. And that garden that they made mm. in Texas was gorgeous so beautiful imagine meeting someone at like your office and you get a bit of a crush on them and you're like hey do you want to come out for a drink they're like no I'm going back to the compound where I live with 50 incredibly beautiful people um hi and we yeah like I I just feel if they're all I mean how good looking are we talking (laughs) that's important the fact that they're all they some of them had jobs in the real world and that's what's amazing to me because often those cults are just like we we wake up here we plough the field we you know draw the water from the well but they were going off and I don't know what their job yeah I don't think they go into detail about what sort of work they were doing but they were and especially because they weren't they were discouraged as well from television and books and things because he didn't he wanted to keep his message pure and not have it tainted by I don't know facts and things (laughs) so it would have been quite jarring to go to the real world and then back to ballet garden yoga place oh it would feel like a haven though I mean it looked beautiful you come home someone's done a service for you by making your bed or oh my god Joe, we haven't talked about the fruit platter the fruit salad <laughs> so, can we talk about it yes it's heartbreaking on a tiny scale so and I think you know Acts of service is actually my second love language. So I'm feeling all the people doing service. My first one is yes. words of affirmation and my second one is acts of service. Like I love that shit. And also it speaks to a kind of, you know, everyone talks about if you're in a bad space or you want to um, regenerate some energy, do volunteer work and what it brings up inside of you in terms of doing good in the world and helping is a really strong kind of way to grow personally. So I can certainly see that there. This one beautiful guy his act of well, his service was to make a fruit salad, and he started. I, look, he had some time on his hands. I would say he started turning these fruit salads into kind of art masterpieces, absolute works of art. I'll I'll see if I can find some still images of them and put them on the Zealot Facebook page as well because these are gorgeous. He did a fruit last supper. He did. He did. I've never heard those <gasps> words put together in my life. He did a fruit <laughs> last supper. I just kind of listened to the absurdity of it. He did. 
And, and well, we have we have a fictional T-shirt for every episode of this podcast, so maybe we could just have a picture of the fruit last supper on a T-shirt. Oh, that would be great. I think focusing yeah. on the fruit and not the speedos is a good vibe at this point. Because um, no, that's the T-shirt. Focus on the fruit, not the speedos. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> this fr- these fruit plates. Michelle didn't eat them because another assistant would just take them, dump the food in a blender and make him a smoothie out of these artworks. Isn't there something there It's like um, non-attachment? There's some kind of Buddhist practice there. You know how sometimes like, people spend ages on a um, mandala and then you just kind of like push it over and you're like, you were doing yeah. I'm teaching you about attachment. Look, I'm not, I'm, I'm saying it was a bit of a dog act of Michelle to put in the smoothie, but I can also see that, you know, it's not about the fruit salad last supper. It's about giving without expectation of reward or um, acknowledgement. And I think, oh, look, I'm, I'm into it. I think maybe I will join it. I'm talking myself around. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk you out of it because no. if, if, if we think that putting the fruit artwork into a smoothie is a dog act, then Let's talk about the bad things just briefly. And if you're not in a good place, we're going to touch a bit on um, sexual abuse. So treat yourself nicely. Yeah, it, it, and I think the way that Will, uh, the filmmaker who is a survivor of Michelle, also the way that he slowly reveals that information through the doco is quite um, delicately done. Um, yes, it's a gut punch because he he snatches you back from starting to think, oh, this idyllic lifestyle is quite good. And, and then it's a love bang. letter to the cult, as as which I think again is you can write a love letter to a toxic relationship and acknowledge what was good about it. And I think he wanted Walter Michael Hutchins wanted us all to see the joy and how what they all loved about it before revealing that you know Michelle not only wasn't what they thought he was and he had this past that he hadn't talked about, but also that he was abusing many of the young men in the cult and convincing them that it was, you know, like all people who groom and abuse, that either it was their fault or he was trying to assist them or gaslighting them into thinking that it wasn't what it was. And you can and also making them think that it was only them. And you can see some, there is very palpable grief on um on the yeah. faces of some of these survivors and the way they tell their stories is is heartbreaking and very brave and beautiful of them to to talk about it. And I think the fact that they have the support of each other still, which again is probably the most heartening thing about that doco, is probably what's got them all through surviving it, you know? Yes, and I cried along with them though because it was just, it was so heartfelt and still so raw and they felt extremely betrayed. And even the people that weren't subject to his abuse, so the women in the cult, they felt deeply betrayed. So in 2006, everyone got an email from an ex-follower that itemised the ways that Michelle had been abusing his young male followers. During these hypnotherapy sessions, he was grooming and then having sex with young male followers and it was unwanted sex. And it was absolutely coerced. And they each believed that they were the only one and he would have a different partner every night. So some of these men for years on end, if I was the guy that he'd chosen for Monday, then every Monday night for years, 
Michelle would force mm. himself on me. Mm. And there's a couple of telling things which really leave a bad taste in my mouth in that you can see him, Michelle, at some point saying things and it's almost grooming the group, saying things like, if you can't stand naked in front of your master, you can't stand naked in front of your God. And he was their master. Yeah. And he was also, and this is quite galling, Michelle was obsessed with AIDS and and very, very frightened of it. And so his preference was to groom virgins because that would keep him safe. And there was a very good CNN article about the Buddha field and it used a great phrase, which I'm, I'm pretty sure they got from Will Allen, the maker of Holy Hell, which was that submission should never be confused with consent. I think a lot of the time where people cannot fathom why people stay in cults or perhaps in damaging relationships is that they do confuse submission with consent. If you are forced into submission, it can often look like you've given consent rather than just yielded to manipulation and pressure and again that key of people staying in whether it's abusive relationships or cults or whatever is that you you sacrifice a sense of yourself and your instinct in order for someone else to tell you how you are feeling and who you are yeah and that power that someone else has to tell you who you are and what you're feeling and what you're what you're thinking is definitely, I mean, it's a, it's that's the classic way of people staying in abusive relationships and I think is the case here in a cult as well. Even if some of them, they didn't want to see the facts, they didn't want to acknowledge that email, they didn't want to hear. And then on top of that, the man that they adored and had given up their lives and families for said, it's not true, you are this, you are feeling this. And they just said, okay. So I think yeah. the fact that so many of them found their instinct and survived it is should be hugely applauded. They're amazing people to have come through that. Totally. And a lot of followers did leave when they came out because the email started other people saying, well, that also happened to me and it was almost a chain reaction. But that's the incredible thing that he, he kind of slowly fled to Hawaii but kept a lot of followers and got new ones yeah and I you know I was like you do a deep dive after the like any good documentary you just go on a deep dive and Mm. just try to discover more um he because he sent along because obviously the doco premiered again I think at Sundance but obviously got a lot of attention um Michelle who has a new name now would send followers to spy on it basically to inform him of what was happening um, and these, so these people have sat through that documentary, their yes. experience, and then gone back and reported to him. The guy is incredibly powerful. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, and they've caused confrontations at film festivals and all that sort of Yeah. It's remarkable. And he is, well, as he would be very unhappy about it, but I'm sure would be telling his followers to practice forgiveness or whatever he says. I mean, it's just there's something astounding in someone being so completely exposed and yet still believing their own publicity or like 
channeling their own denial to that degree. It's amazing. It's really amazing. That's the weird thing. You have to give him props, reluctant and disgusted props, not just for his incredibly acrobatic um, blowjob skills. Okay. But I have to. It always comes back to the blowjob. But also just for his... He's incredible. Yes. And manipulation skills. That is, even though being manipulative is a very bad thing, he's good at it. He is highly skilled. (laughs) That is true. He is a great, if there's one thing he's great at, it's manipulation. And I think self-belief, you know, to have that. And (laughs) sit-ups. To have that amount of people telling you, that they know who you are and they've exposed you and you say, no, that's not true. Yeah, and while while they're fetching his food and putting his socks on and toweling him down after a swim and carrying his chair around and like trialling trialing plastic surgery so he can see if it if he wants it or not. Oh, yeah, that, that's dark as shit. I don't, like, oh. I wouldn't mind someone giving me a towel down and, or making me some fruits. Um and tell me that's another t-shirt as well tell me down and make me some fruits <laughs> and and having my feet touched that'd be nice um, yeah I just wanted it's and often so much with those cults and I guess you've got experience talking about this it's a sense of belonging isn't it you know we're all so lonely where sometimes we're lonely in our families or we're lonely in relationships or this is a time of extreme loneliness because people are isolated from their community and what you see again and again in people joining these things is that they want to belong and be in something. Um, and I, that's kind of tragic and great and, you know, I think it's in, mm. it's in all of us. You know, I'm not close oh. to my family and so I kind of seek families everywhere you know, like I, which is not to say I glom onto other people's families, but I like try <laughs> try and recreate like even in, you know, art projects that I do or just like that real kind of sense of war. It's well, your chosen family. And these people yeah. feel even though they had this extremely tragic and traumatic experience, I think they are a family. They've managed to, to k- keep that element of it. And I'd just like to remind people that you don't have to be in a cult to get a towel down. You can just yeah. ask nicely. Yeah, yeah. If someone loves you, they will give you a towel down. That's they will towel you I down. Thought of that. I was just about to join a cult so I could get toweled down, but now I know that I can just ask. Yeah, love means never having to join a cult to get a towel down. Oh. Okay, we've we've milked that. Um, are there any are there any random facts we've missed? Random, random. Facts. I'm talking random facts. I'm talking random facts about cults and that. Cults and that. That is the most perfect thing I've ever heard. Oh, there was members of the cult made and advertised a hair clip called Wings. You just can't. And they sold it commercially. Is there anything these guys couldn't do? And they would model it as well because they're also kind of milk fed and sexy that they. And as the result of that modeling and that commercial, there was a guy outside the cult who had a massive crush on one of the pretty girls that was modeling this wings hair clip. And he thought the only way he could get her, he was a bit of a stalker, would be to break up the cult. So he ran away and dobbed to 
the Cult Awareness Network and Rick Ross looked into them but um, didn't do any damage, so they're still going. Yeah, I think and, that's the amazing thing out of it and I guess you must have stats on how many of the cults that you discuss with people are still, even in a much more reduced capacity, still going. <laughs> oh, a remarkable number. And one of the members of Butterfield in the in the documentary says, you've got a cult next door, guaranteed. And there is, you know, in everyone's neighbourhood there, is that, there probably is, is some like, kind of group. You know how they say... There's a dickhead in every friendship group and if you don't know who it is, then you're the dickhead. Is that if, like, if I can't find the cult, I am the cult? There's no cult next door, we are the cult? That would be amazing. Look, I guarantee that if you're a cult, there'd be clues. Well, here, to to judge whether or not you're a cult, have you ever made a terrible music video for a song called La Femme Fatale? Oh, yeah, there's people who haven't covered. I was trying to find that the full-length music video online and I couldn't, but it's in a short clip of it, which is to to warn cult members about the dangers of overt sexuality. It's, it's so misogynistic. Oh, it's, a, it's, you know, a ballad about tits and how bad they are. Well, that is false information. That is Look, not- it's about time. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, God, he was really, he was a real renaissance wasn't he complete that's a perfect way of describing it Mm. and i think a real renaissance prick would be the last thing we say except i think in closing i need to say that love grows where my rosemary's baby goes join a cult no or or don't just be your own cult inside your heart that's not how that usually goes but great Thank you. You've been listening to Zealot, produced by me, Joe Thornley, drinking an artistic fruit smoothie. My co-host for this episode was Marie Hardy, who might ask you nicely for a towel down. Further reading and definitely no acrobatic blowjobs can be found on the Zealot Facebook page. And music is by the Everglades, a warm bath with jazzy bubbles and that soap you like. Oh, namaste, eh? <laughs> <laughs>